Part Two, Chapter Four of Chancellorsville and Gettysburg. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Chancellorsville and Gettysburg, by Abner Doubleday, Part Two, Chapter Four, Part A. The first day of the Battle of Gettysburg, Wednesday, July first, eighteen sixty-three. On the morning of the 1st of July, General Buford, as stated, held the ridges to the west of Gettysburg, with his cavalry division, composed of Gamble's and Devon's brigades. His vedettes were thrown far out toward the enemy to give timely notice of any movement, for he was determined to prevent the rebels from entering the town if possible, and knew the First Corps would soon be up to support him. The enemy were not aware that there was any considerable force in the vicinity, and in the morning sent forward Heth's division of Hill's corps to occupy the place, anticipating no difficulty in doing so. Buford in the meantime had dismounted a large part of his force, had strengthened his line of skirmishers, and planted his batteries at the most commanding points. General Reynolds, in consequence of the duties devolving upon him as commander of the left wing of the army, that is, of the 1st, 3rd, and 11th Corps, had turned over the command of the First Corps to me. He now made immediate dispositions to go forward to assist Buford. As my corps was largely engaged in the first day's operations, I must be excused for having a good deal to say in the first person in relation to them. Reynolds sent for me about six o'clock in the morning, read to me the various dispatches he had received from Meade and Buford, and told me he should go forward at once with the nearest division, that of Wadsworth, to aid the cavalry. He then instructed me to draw in my pickets, assemble the artillery and the remainder of the corps, and join him as soon as possible. Having given these orders, he rode off at the head of the column, and I never saw him again. The position of the two armies on the morning of the 1st of July was as follows. The 1st Corps at Marsh Creek, the 2nd and 3rd Corps at Taneytown, the latter being under orders to march to Emmitsburg, to relieve the Eleventh Corps, which was directed to join the First Corps at Gettysburg. The Twelfth Corps was at Two Taverns, the Fifth Corps at Hanover, and the Sixth Corps about thirty-five miles off to the right at Manchester. Kilpatrick's and Gregg's divisions of cavalry were also at Hanover. The Confederate Army was advancing on Gettysburg from the west and north. The concentration of their troops and the dispersion of ours are indicated on the map. It must be remembered that the enemy had but three corps, while the Union army had seven. Each of their corps represented a third, and each of ours a seventh of our total force. The same ratio extended to divisions and brigades. Heth's division, which started early in the morning to occupy the town, soon found itself confronted by Buford's skirmishers, and formed line of battle with Archer's and Davis's brigades in front, followed by those of Pettigrew and Brockenborough. At nine a.m. the first gun was heard. Buford had three cannon-shots fired as a signal for his skirmish line to open on the enemy, and the Battle of Gettysburg began. Lieutenant Colonel Cress, of General Wadsworth's staff, entered Gettysburg about this time and found General Buford surrounded by his staff in front of the tavern there. Buford turned to him and said, "'What are you doing here, sir?' Crest replied that he came on to get some shoes for Wadsworth's division. 
Buford told him that he had better return immediately to his command. Crest said, "'Why, what is the matter, General?' At that moment the far-off sound of a single gun was heard, and Buford replied, as he mounted his horse and galloped off, "'That's the matter!' As the rebels had had several encounters with militia, who were easily dispersed, they did not expect to meet any serious resistance at this time, and advanced confidently and carelessly. Buford gave way slowly, taking advantage of every accident of ground to protract the struggle. After an hour's fighting he felt anxious, and went up into the steeple of the theological seminary, from which a wide view could be obtained, to see if the First Corps was in sight. One division of it was close at hand, and soon Reynolds, who had preceded it, climbed up into the belfry to confer with him there, and examine the country around. Although there is no positive testimony to that effect, his attention was doubtless attracted to Cemetery Ridge in his rear, as it was one of the most prominent features of the landscape. An aide of General Howard, presumably Major Hall, soon after Reynolds descended from the belfry, came up to ask if he had any instructions with regard to the Eleventh Corps. Reynolds, in reply, directed that General Howard bring his corps forward at once, and form them on Cemetery Hill as a reserve. General Howard has no recollection of having received any such orders, but as he did get orders to come forward, and as his corps was to occupy some place in rear, as a support to the First Corps, nothing is more probable than that General Reynolds directed him to go there, for its military advantages were obvious enough to any experienced commander. Lieutenant Rosengarten, of General Reynolds' staff, states positively that he was present and heard the order given for Howard to post his troops on Cemetery Ridge. The matter is of some moment, as the position in question ultimately gave us the victory, and Howard received the thanks of Congress for selecting it. It is not to be supposed that either Howard or Rosengarten would mistake the matter. It is quite probable that Reynolds chose the hill simply as a position upon which his force could rally if driven back, and Howard selected it as a suitable battlefield for the army. It has since been universally conceded that it was admirably adapted for that purpose. It will be seen from the above map that there are two roads coming to Gettysburg from the west, making a considerable angle with each other. Each is intersected by ridges running north and south. On that nearest to the town, and about three-fourths of a mile from the central square, there was a large brick building which was used as a Lutheran theological seminary. A small stream of water called Willoughby's Run winds between the next two ridges. The battle on the first day was principally fought on the heights on each side of this stream. Buford being aware that Ewell's corps would soon be on its way from Heidlersburg to the field of battle, was obliged to form line facing north with Devon's brigade, and leave Gamble's brigade to keep back the overpowering weight of Hill's corps advancing from the west. While this fighting was going on, and Reynolds and Wadsworth were pressing to the front, I was engaged in withdrawing the pickets and assembling the other two divisions, together with the corps artillery. As soon as I saw that my orders were in process of execution, I galloped to the front, leaving the troops to follow, and caught up with Meredith's brigade of Wadsworth's division, commonly called the Iron Brigade, just as it was going into action. 
In the meantime the enemy approaching from the west were pressing with great force against Buford's slender skirmish line, and Reynolds went forward with Cutler's brigade to sustain it. He skilfully posted Hall's second main battery in the road, and threw forward two regiments, the 14th Brooklyn and the 95th New York, a short distance in advance on the left. At the same time he directed General Wadsworth to place the remaining three regiments of the brigade, the 147th New York, the 76th New York, and the 56th Pennsylvania, on the right of the road. When this formation was completed, the cavalry brigade under Gamble, which had been fighting there, withdrew and formed in column on the left of the infantry. But the other cavalry brigade, under Devon, which was not facing in that direction, still held the position, awaiting the advance of Ewell's corps from the north. As Davis's rebel brigade of Heth's division fronting Wadsworth were hidden behind an intervening ridge, Wadsworth did not see them at first, but formed his three regiments perpendicularly to the road, without a reconnaissance. The result was that Davis came over the hill almost directly on the right flank of this line, which being unable to defend itself was forced back and directed by Wadsworth to take post in a piece of woods in rear on Seminary Ridge. The two regiments on the right accordingly withdrew, but the 147th New York, which was next to the road, did not receive the order, as their colonel was shot down before he could deliver it. They were at once surrounded, and very much cut up before they could be rescued from their perilous position. The two regiments on the right, which were forced back, were veterans, conspicuous for gallantry in every battle in which the Army of the Potomac had been engaged since the Peninsula Campaign. As Wadsworth withdrew them without notifying Hall's battery in the road, or the two regiments posted by Reynolds on the left, both became exposed to a disastrous flank attack on the right. Hall finding a cloud of skirmishers launched against his battery, which was now without support, was compelled to retreat. The horses of the lost gun were all shot or bayoneted. The non-military reader will see that while a battery can keep back masses of men, it cannot contend with a line of skirmishers. To resist them would be very much like fighting mosquitoes with musket-balls. The two regiments posted by Reynolds, the 14th Brooklyn and the 95th New York, finding their support gone on the right, while Archer's rebel brigade was advancing to envelop their left, fell back leisurely under Colonel Fowler of the 14th Brooklyn, who assumed command of both as the ranking officer present. I reached the field just as the attack on Cutler's brigade was going on, and at once sent my adjutant-general, Major Halstead, and young Meredith L. Jones, who was acting as aide on my staff, to General Reynolds to ask instructions. Under the impression that the enemy's columns were approaching on both roads, Reynolds said, "'Tell Doubleday I will hold on to this road,' referring to the Chambersburg road, "'and he must hold on to that one,' meaning the road to Fairfield or Hagerstown. At the same time he sent Jones back at full speed to bring up a battery. The rebels, however, did not advance on the Fairfield Road until late in the afternoon. They must have been in force upon it, some miles back, for the cavalry so reported, and this caused me during the entire day to give more attention than was necessary to my left, as I feared the enemy might separate my corps from the 3rd and 11th Corps at Emmitsburg. Such a movement would be equivalent to interposing between the 1st Corps and the main army. 
There was a piece of woods between the two roads, with open ground on each side. It seemed to me this was the key of the position, for if this woods was strongly held, the enemy could not pass on either road without being taken in flank by the infantry, and in front by the cavalry. I therefore urged the men as they filed past me to hold it at all hazards. Full of enthusiasm and the memory of their past achievements, they said to me proudly, If we can't hold it, where will you find men who can? As they went forward under command of General Morrow, of the 24th Michigan Volunteers, a brave and capable soldier, who, when a mere youth, was engaged in the Mexican War, I rode over to the left to see if the enemy's line extended beyond ours, and if there would be any attempt to flank our troops in that direction. I saw, however, only a few skirmishers, and returned to organize a reserve. I knew there was fighting going on between Cutler's brigade and the rebels in his front, but as General Reynolds was there in person, I only attended to my own part of the line, and halted the 6th Wisconsin Regiment as it was going into the action, together with a hundred men of the brigade guard, taken from the 149th Pennsylvania, to station them in the open space between the seminary and the woods, as a reserve, the whole being under the command of Lieutenant Colonel R. R. Dawes, of the 6th Wisconsin. A note here. I sent orders to Morrow under the supposition that he was the ranking officer of the brigade. Colonel W. W. Robinson, 7th Wisconsin, was entitled to the command, and exercised it during the remainder of the battle. End of note. It is proper to state that General Meredith, the permanent commander of the brigade, was wounded as he was coming up, some time after its arrival, by a shell which exploded in front of his horse. Both parties were now trying to obtain possession of the woods. Archer's rebel brigade, preceded by a skirmish line, was crossing Willoughby's Run to enter them on one side as the Iron Brigade went in on the other. General Reynolds was on horseback in the edge of the woods, surrounded by his staff. He felt some anxiety as to the result, and turned his head frequently to see if our troops would be up in time. While looking back in this way, a rebel sharpshooter shot him through the back of the head, the bullet coming out near the eye. He fell dead in an instant, without a word. The country sustained great loss in his death. I lamented him as almost a lifelong companion. We were at West Point together, and had served in the same regiment, the old Third Artillery, upon first entering service, along with our present commander-in-chief, General Sherman, and General George H. Thomas. When quite young we had fought in the same battles in Mexico. There was little time, however, to indulge in these recollections. The situation was very peculiar. The rebel left under Davis had driven in Cutler's brigade, and our left under Morrow had charged into the woods, preceded by the second Wisconsin under Colonel Fairchild, swept suddenly and unexpectedly around the right flank of Archer's brigade, and captured a large part of it, including Archer himself. The fact is, the enemy were careless and underrated us, thinking, it is said, that they had only militia to contend with. The Iron Brigade had a different headgear from the rest of the army, and were recognized at once by their old antagonists. Some of the latter were heard to exclaim, "'There are those damned black-headed fellows again! Tain't no militia! It's the Army of the Potomac!' Having captured Archer and his men, 
many of the Iron Brigade kept on beyond Willoughby's run, and formed on the heights on the opposite side. The command now devolved upon me, with its great responsibilities. The disaster on the right required immediate attention, for the enemy, with loud yells, were pursuing Cutler's brigade toward the town. I at once ordered my reserve under Lieutenant Colonel Dawes to advance against their flank. I reasoned that they would present their other flank to Cutler's men, so that I felt quite confident of the result. In war, however, unexpected changes are constantly occurring. Cutler's brigade had been withdrawn by order of General Wadsworth, without my knowledge, to the suburbs of Gettysburg. Fortunately, Fowler's two regiments came on to join Dawes, who went forward with great spirit, but who was altogether too weak to assail so large a force. As he approached, the rebels ceased to pursue Cutler, and rushed into the railroad cut to obtain the shelter of the grating. They made a fierce and obstinate resistance, but, while Fowler confronted them above, about twenty of Dawes' men were formed across the cut by his adjutant, E. P. Brooks, to fire through it. The rebels could not resist this. The greater number gave themselves up as prisoners, and the others scattered over the country and escaped. This success relieved the 147th New York, which, as I stated, was surrounded when Cutler fell back, and it also enabled us to regain the gun which Hall had been obliged to abandon. The enemy having vanished from our immediate front, I withdrew the Iron Brigade from its advanced position beyond the creek, reformed the line on the ridge where General Reynolds had originally placed it, and awaited a fresh attack, or orders from General Meade. The two regiments of Cutler's brigade were brought back from the town, and, notwithstanding the check they had received, they fought with great gallantry throughout the three days' battle that ensued. There was now a lull in the combat. I was waiting for the remainder of the First Corps to come up, and Heth was reorganizing his shattered front line, and preparing to bring his two other brigades forward. The remnant of Archer's brigade was placed on the right, and made to face south against Buford's cavalry, which, it was feared, might attack that flank. What was left of Davis's brigade was sent to the extreme left of the line, and Pegram's artillery was brought forward and posted on the high ground west of Willoughby's Run. Thus prepared, and with Pender's strong division in rear, ready to cover his retreat if defeated, or to follow up his success if victorious, Heth advanced to renew the attack. As I had but four weak infantry brigades at this time against eight larger brigades which were about to assail my line, I would have been justified in falling back, but I determined to hold on to the position until ordered to leave it. I did not believe in the system, so prevalent at that time, of avoiding the enemy. I quite agreed with Reynolds that it was best to meet him as soon as possible, for the rebellion, if reduced to a war of positions, would never end so long as the main army of the Confederates was left in a condition to take the field. A retreat, too, has a bad effect on the men. It gives them the impression that their generals think them too weak to contend with the enemy. I was not aware, at this time, that Howard was on the ground, for he had given me no indication of his presence, but I knew that General Meade was at Taneytown, and, as, on the previous evening, he had informed General Reynolds that the enemy's army were concentrating on Gettysburg, 
I thought it probable he would ride to the front to see for himself what was going on, and issue definite orders of some kind. As Gettysburg covered the great roads from Chambersburg to York, Baltimore, and Washington, and as its possession by Lee would materially shorten and strengthen his line of retreat, I was in favour of making great sacrifices to hold it. While we were thus temporarily successful, having captured or dispersed all the forces in our immediate front, a very misleading dispatch was sent to General Meade by General Howard. It seems that General Howard had reached Gettysburg in advance of his corps, just after the two regiments of Cutler's brigade, which had been outflanked, fell back to the town by General Wadsworth's order. Upon witnessing this retreat, which was somewhat disorderly, General Howard hastened to send a special messenger to General Meade with the baleful intelligence that the First Corps had fled from the field at the first contact with the enemy, thus magnifying a forced retreat of two regiments, acting under orders, into the flight of an entire corps, two-thirds of which had not yet reached the field. It is unnecessary to say that this astounding news created the greatest feeling against the corps, which were loudly cursed for their supposed lack of spirit and patriotism. About eleven a.m. the remainder of the First Corps came up, together with Cooper's, Stewart's, Reynolds, and Stevens' batteries. By this time the enemy's artillery had been posted on every commanding position to the west of us, several of their batteries firing down the Chambersburg Pike. I was very desirous to hold this road, as it was in the centre of the enemy's line, who were advancing on each side of it, and Califf, exposed as his battery was, fired over the crest of ground where he was posted, and, notwithstanding the storm of missiles that assailed him, held his own handsomely, and inflicted great damage on his adversaries. He was soon after relieved by Reynolds' Battery L of the 1st New York, which was sustained by Colonel Roy Stone's brigade of Pennsylvania troops, which I ordered there for that purpose. Stone formed his men on the left of the pike, behind a ridge running north and south, and partially sheltered them by a stone fence, some distance in advance, from which he had driven the rebel skirmish line, after an obstinate contest. It was a hot place for troops, for the whole position was alive with bursting shells, but the men went forward in fine spirits, and under the impression that the place was to be held at all hazards, they cried out, WE HAVE COME TO STAY. The battle afterward became so severe that the greater portion did stay, laying down their lives there for the cause they loved so well. Morrow's brigade remained in the woods where Reynolds was killed, and Biddle's brigade was posted on its left in the open ground along the crest of the same ridge, with Cooper's battery in the interval. Cutler's brigade took up its former position on the right of the road. Having disposed of Wadsworth's division and my own division, which was now under the command of Brigadier General Raleigh, I directed General Robinson's division to remain in reserve at the seminary, and to throw up a small semicircular rail entrenchment in the grove in front of the building. Toward the close of the action this defence, weak and imperfect as it was, proved to be of great service. The accompanying map shows the position of troops and batteries at this time. It will be seen that Heth's division is formed on the western ridge which bounds Willoughby's Run and along a crossroad which intersects the Chambersburg Road at right angles. 
Pender's division, posted in the rear as a support to Heth, was formed in the following order by brigades. Thomas, Lane, Scales, and McGowan, under Perrin, the first named on the rebel left and Perrin on the right. To sustain Heth's advance and crush out all opposition, both Pegram's and McIntosh's artillery were posted on the crest of the ridge, west of the run. While this was going on, General Howard, who was awaiting the arrival of his corps, had climbed into the steeple of the seminary to obtain a view of the surrounding country. At 11.30 a.m. he learned that General Reynolds was killed, and that the commander of the three corps, the 1st, 11th, and 3rd, constituting the left wing of the army, devolved upon him by virtue of his rank. He saw that the First Corps was contending against large odds, and sent back for the Eleventh Corps to come up at double-quick. Upon assuming command of the left wing, he turned over his own corps to Major General Carl Schertz, who then gave up the command of his division to General Barlow. Howard notified General Meade of Reynolds' death, but forgot to take back or modify the false statement he had made about the First Corps, now engaged before his eyes, in a most desperate contest with a largely superior force, so that General Meade was still left under the impression that the First Corps had fled from the field. Howard also sent a request to Slocum, who was at two taverns, only about five miles from Gettysburg, to come forward, but Slocum declined without orders from Meade. He probably thought if any one commander could assume the direction of other corps, he might antagonize the plans of the general-in-chief. Upon receiving the news of the death of General Reynolds and the disorder which it was supposed had been created by that event, General Meade superseded Howard by sending his junior officer, General Hancock, to assume command of the field, with directions to notify him of the condition of affairs at the front. He also ordered General John Newton of the Sixth Corps to take command of the First Corps. The head of the Eleventh Corps reached Gettysburg at 12.45 p.m., and the rear at 1.45 p.m. Schimmelfenig's division led the way, followed by that of Barlow. The two were directed to prolong the line of the First Corps to the right along Seminary Ridge. The remaining division, that of Steinwehr, with the reserve artillery under Major Osborne, were ordered to occupy Cemetery Hill, in rear of Gettysburg, as a reserve to the entire line. Before this disposition could be carried out, however, Buford rode up to me with the information that his scouts reported the advance of Ewell's Corps from Heidlersburg directly on my right flank. I sent a staff officer to communicate this intelligence to General Howard, with the message that I would endeavor to hold my ground against A. P. Hill's Corps, if he could, by means of the Eleventh Corps, keep Ewell from attacking my right. He accordingly directed the Eleventh Corps to change front to meet Ewell. As it did so, Devon's cavalry brigade fell back and took up a position to the right and rear of this line, just south of the railroad bridge. The concentration of Rhodes and Early's divisions, the one from Carlisle and the other from York, took place with great exactness, both arriving in sight of Gettysburg at the same time. The other division, that of Johnson, took a longer route from Carlisle by way of Greenwood, to escort the trains, and did not reach the battlefield until sunset. Anderson's division of Hill's Corps was also back at the pass in the mountains on the Chambersburg Road. 
It had halted to allow Johnson to pass, and then followed him to Gettysburg, reaching there about dusk. The first indication I had that Ewell had arrived, and was taking part in the battle, came from a battery posted on an eminence called Oak Hill, almost directly in the prolongation of my line, and about a mile north of Colonel Stone's position. This opened fire about 1.30 p.m., and rendered new dispositions necessary, for Howard had not guarded my right flank as proposed, and indeed soon had more than he could do to maintain his line. When the guns referred to opened fire, Wadsworth, without waiting for orders, threw Cutler's brigade back into the woods on Seminary Ridge, north of the railroad grading, a movement I sanctioned as necessary. Morrow's brigade was concealed from the view of the enemy, in the woods where Reynolds fell, and Biddle's brigade, by my order, changed front to the north. It could do so with impunity, as it was behind a ridge which concealed its left flank from Hill's corps, and was further protected in that direction by two companies of the 20th New York State Militia, who occupied a house and barn in advance, sent there by the colonel of that regiment, Theodore B. Gates, whose skill and energy were of great service to me during the battle. It would, of course, have been impossible to hold the line if Hill attacked on the west and Ewell assailed me at the same time on the north. But I occupied the central position, and their converging columns did not strike together until the grand final advance at the close of the day, and therefore I was able to resist several of their isolated attacks before the last crash came. Stone's brigade in the centre had a difficult angle to defend, but was partially sheltered by a ridge on the west. His position was in truth the key point of the first day's battle. It overlooked the field, and its possession by the enemy would cut our force in two, enfilade Morrow's and Biddle's brigades, and compel a hasty retreat. End of Part A